Well, when God blessed us with our first son and uh, we gave him the name David, uh, he didn't give us foresight into the fact that we would be sharing the same stage. Or, do you call this a stage? Anyways, this uh, platform, I guess. Um, anyways, we'd be sharing that. Uh, so sorry about that. I didn't realize that uh, that would happen when we named him. But um, anyways, that's what it is. Um, these days I'm, I'm um, speaking, I'm pulpit supplying in a historic Presbyterian church in Niagara-on-the-Lake. It was actually built back in 1796 and uh, was burned down by the Americans uh, in the War of 1812-14, boo. Um, but then we, we went and burned down their White House, so uh, I guess I got them back. Anyways, it was restored in, and uh, rebuilt in 1833, and they've, they've maintained the historicity of the church, and so when you go in, really, really interesting. Um, you enter the church from the front. So all you people who came in about five or 10 after 11 today, you would have come right into the front and everybody would have been looking at you as you made your entrance. Really interesting. Uh, not sure what the, uh, uh, the thinking of what, uh, that was, but uh, anyways, that's the way it is. And uh, so they have the box pews and they have the, the high pulpit and, and everything. And I, it's really weird to speak up that high. It's hard to make eye contact. And so uh, I like uh, every once in a while to come back and welcome this opportunity where you're a little closer and uh, engage in uh, worship with you this morning. But it, it's kind of a neat opportunity that, that God's opened up. And um, yeah, we're just, um, I'm, I've had people say to me, uh, you've taken us into parts of the Bible where we've never been before. And uh, so we're trying to just encourage them to uh, come to an understanding of the God of the scriptures, uh, come to an understanding of God's story of love and uh, move them forward in, in their, their journeys. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, when I was here last time, uh, Lucas was introducing a series of talks that he was going to give on questions. I think you were to kind of send in your questions and he was going to look at them and, and do, uh, uh, and talk about them. And so it, got, it kind of got me thinking about my talk to you today because Jesus was a great individual, or Jesus loved to engage in answering people's questions and engaging people in, in their questions. And so we want to look at uh, one of those conversations today, what I'm calling uh, the big question, and uh, see if we can learn some things about how um, we can respond to not only to God, but those um, around us. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, thanks for this opportunity of being together gathering in your presence. And we pray that you will give us Jesus, that Jesus will be present with us, that we will know and understand what it is that he has in mind for us in living out our lives as his followers. And so open our minds, give us understanding, ears to hear, and um, may we not only just be listeners to your word, but uh, as James says, doers also. So thank you for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Karen Maines uh, tells the story of a Sunday school teacher who wanted to be sure that her junior boys understood the gospel message. And so she asked them, if I sold my house and car, 
had a big garage sale and gave all my money to the church, would that get me into heaven? The boys shouted in unison, no. She went on, if I cleaned the church every day, mowed the yard and kept everything neat and tidy, would that get me into heaven? Again, no. Well, if I was kind to animals and gave candy to all the children and loved my husband, would that get me into heaven? No. Well, then how can I get to heaven? With this question, one of the boys shouted out, you gotta be dead. <laughs> the question of heaven and how to get there is a common topic of conversation. It poses what I have titled life's big question. I suspect that at some point, most of you here today have been in a conversation about this question. There is an account in the Gospel of Luke that is instructive in our quest to make heaven our desired destination. Jesus was questioned by what, on what pathway, if followed, would lead to a life that God would bless with entrance into heaven. Listen to how Luke describes the encounter between Jesus and his inquisitor. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. This crucial question between Jesus and the legal expert of Jewish law points us to the ethical tension of listening to God while being sensitive to the well-being of people around us. Jesus brings this to light by answering the, the, the lawyer's question with another question. Jesus wants to know what lurks behind the lawyer's inquiry. And so rather than giving a quick response, he probes the legal expert's thinking on the very question that he asks. A while ago, I was, uh, had a phone conversation from a younger pastor that I know, and he invited me out for coffee. In the course of the conversation that took place over coffee cups, he indicated that he had been reading a book on leadership in which the author had proposed asking a mentor what he or she learned, and perhaps even more importantly, what he or she had unlearned over, a li over their lifetime. Well, since I had been involved in coaching him, he decided to ask me. I responded to what I had learned by stating that I had learned it is more important to work on coming up with right questions as opposed to always trying to figure out the right answers. As for what I had unlearned, well, you'll have to invite me back to hear that. It takes too long to tell you this morning what I've unlearned in my life. Anyways, um, it would have been so easy, so easy for Jesus to tell the lawyer the right answer to his question, and then to send him on his way. But there was a much deeper issue at stake here. So Jesus probed, what do you think? You are familiar with the law. What is your take on it? You know, as I read this encounter between Jesus and the legal expert, I, I sometimes wonder how I would have responded to the question this inquirer put to Jesus. I think I likely would have grown in, broken into a bit of a cold sweat as I tried to remember all of the scripture verses on evangelism that I learned in evangelism class. 
I may have pulled out a copy of Steps to Peace with God or Unpack the Roman's Road or drawn a picture on, the, on a napkin of the bridge illustration in my panic to make sure that the person acknowledged his sin and confessed it to God. Now, I'm not knocking these methods for explaining the gospel. They have all been helpful to me over the years. But I see in Jesus' engagement with the lawyer a level of relaxed spontaneity that is more intent in helping his inquirer make the amazing discovery of God's kind of love than downloading a packaged gospel presentation on him. I see in Jesus' approach, or Jesus' response rather, an approach that starts from a different perspective than where I often find myself going in talking with people who are away from God or making inquiries about how to be rightly related to him. As Christ followers... What is our primary role in this world? Now, many of you, I would suspect, would say that it's making disciples. And that's true. That's often where my focus goes. After all, this is the heart of the Great Commission, is it not? And certainly this is a key component of what Jesus had in mind as he released his disciples on their global mission. But Jesus never called this commissioning great. The title Great Commission was attached to Jesus' exhortation by missiologists sometime after the church had become established. It therefore is important for us to understand what Jesus called great. When Matthew and Mark record this conversation between Jesus and the legal expert in their gospel accounts, they too have Jesus introducing the legal requirement of loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But then they have him pausing a little bit. And they, they have Jesus presenting the, the fact that this was a great commandment, but then he attaches to the commandment the, the, the commandment to love our neighbors as the perfect corollary, lumping them together as the greatest commandments. And so when it comes to aligning with what Jesus called great, this is it. To love God thoroughly and let it show an expression of love to others. This may rightly be called the great commandment. I'm afraid that a lot of our evangelism efforts have been focused on keeping people out of hell. And, and I get that. No one wants their friends or family to be in danger of eternal punishment. However, let me say that I'm becoming more convinced that, that primarily my, my place is to introduce people to God, to come to an understanding of his great love, to help them come to the point where they delight in him for who he is. I have the power and authority of Jesus to direct people in their knowledge of God. I cannot keep people from going to hell. That's not my call. Interestingly, in John chapter 17, when Jesus prayed that, to the Father that his disciples would come to an understanding and would come to experience eternal life, notice how he defined eternal life. This is what he said. And this is the way to eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. When it comes to aligning Jesus' response to the lawyer's inquiry with what we have generally been taught about evangelism, a certain amount of tension and confusion is created for us in Jesus' response. I mean, why does Jesus not point him to the need to confess his sins? Why does he not direct him to acknowledge Jesus as Savior? Why does he commend him for keeping the law as the way to eternal life? 
But really, what Jesus says to the lawyer is not offside with his mission of salvation. If there is no confidence in God's love, there will be no conviction for loving him and making a life surrender to him. And so Jesus points the lawyer to the life-giving response of loving God at every level. If he makes this his sole pursuit, he will find the way to what he is after. In a previous church where I served uh, as pastor, we had multiple services, much like you do here. Only we also had a Saturday evening service. This was a, a, a more informal time of gathering populated largely by youth and young adults. Now, many of the youth brought their smartphones with them to service and were texting each other throughout the time. I mean, it was hardly obvious in the dimly lit sanctuary, the, the section where most of the youth sat had this eerie glow that emerged from it, from the lighted display of their phones. Now, I suppose for some, the way to address them would be to blast the youth for being so disrespectful. Well, we didn't think that that would be the way to approach it. And so we began to dialogue about how we could redeem this actuality and maybe make it work to our advantage. And so we decided upon inviting the youth to text questions to the youth staff while I was speaking. And then at the end of my talk, I would sit on a stool and answer some of their questions. We didn't do this every week, but we did it on a number of occasions. And I remember one time after I had spoken on the self-revealing nature of God, receiving a text with this question, why should I give myself to God? What has he ever done for me? I doubted that this person was the only one present in the service that night who was asking this question. And it may be that there are those of you here today who have the same question on your minds. But I need to say that by asking this question, we show that we do not have a proper understanding of why God reveals himself to us. Although God is interested in what goes on in our lives and does meet us in our times of need, he doesn't exist to do things for us. When we get or give the idea that God is only necessary to keep us from facing, facing a nasty life and to save us from an uncertain eternity, then when life gets messy and disappointments and tough times come, we conclude that God isn't living up to his end of the deal. However, when we see life from the perspective of responding to a God who by nature and character is love, then we see our days as being filled with opportunities to delightfully love God with our life choices. God wants us to love him passionately. Our love for God is to be a, heart, a matter of, of heart and soul, a love that captures all of our devotion. It is a purposeful love that surpasses any love for material, personal, or physical attractions. It is a love that comes from the center core of our being and carries with it the resilience of character. And then God wants us to love him thoughtfully with our minds. Our love for God does not come from mindless rituals or unintelligent practices. God wants us to think about how we love him. He wants us to explore his being so that we can love him intelligently and rationally. And third, God wants us to love him mightily with the strength of our will. There needs to be some energy expressed in our love for God. This is not just some limp exercise. 
Well, Jesus was so deep in his love relationship with his father that the lawyer was drawn to him, even if with impure motives, because he saw in Jesus the capacity to obtain an answer to his question. When our, one of our other sons was attending university in a graduate medical program, he was often challenged by his classmates for his faith-based decision-making. One particular classmate was constantly pumping him with questions, most of which he was able to give a logical explanation that silenced her arguments. On one particular interchange, she became so frustrated that she tore a page out of her notebook and wrote these words, I, followed by our son's name, will never talk with and inserted her name about religion again. She slid the paper across the table and said, sign this. Our son looked at what she had written, signed the paper, gave it back to her. She looked somewhat surprised until he said to her, I can sign that because I'm not talking to you about religion. I'm talking to you about the intimacy of a personal relationship with a living God. What am I saying to us here? I am saying that there must come to each of us a depth of relationship with God that so transforms the core of our inner being that our outer lives are shaped by his heart. What makes God's heart beat makes our hearts beat. What makes his blood boil makes our blood boil. What draws him to show patience and grace and kindness draws us to show the same. What prompts him to speak truth and righteousness and blessing causes similar expressions to come from our lips. I am setting before us a way of life that reflects God's character. I am proposing that we set the inner compass of our lives to align with the God who created us to live in all that is good. I am calling us to embrace a love for God in the depths of our being that will become a constant source of joy to ourselves and a refreshment to others. Well, after Jesus affirmed the lawyer about the importance of loving God with his whole being and how this love was to, be, to impact his relationship with others, the lawyer expressed some dissatisfaction with Jesus' reply. His response is typical for legalists. When legalism forms our basis for faith, it promotes defensiveness. Luke alone of the gospel writers has the conversation with Jesus and the legalists continuing on in this way. But he, that is the expert of the law, wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A, excuse me, a priest happened to be going along the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave, him, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he asked, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers, Jesus asked. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It is apparent 
that the defensive snag upon which the lawyer gets caught is just how his neighborly love is to be extended. Surely there are limits to those he is expected to love. The settled satisfaction that he feels justified in regarding some people as non-neighbors is what Jesus responds to in this story. The fact that Jesus chose to make a Samaritan the hero in the story would totally unnerve the lawyer. Jesus couldn't have chosen a more settling scenario to present in response to the legalist question. For an expert in Jewish law, Samaritans were the ultimate lawbreakers. Ethically and morally, they were despicable reprobates. They were the bastard race of Israelis bedding down with the enemy by marrying with the conquering, intermarrying rather, with the conquering Assyrians. They were guilty of compromising all that was true and honorable and pure when it came to Jewish orthodoxy. Jesus had crossed the line if he expected the lawyer to treat these people with any kind of neighborly practice. Once again, as Jesus does a rap on his conversation with the legal expert, he responds to the lawyer's question with another question. Who do you think was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by thugs? The lawyer is in so much mental stress that he cannot bring himself to say the racial identity of the one who acted in a neighborly manner, and so he responds in a half-mumble, well, the one who showed mercy, I guess. Jesus called him to become this kind of neighbor. Notice the shuttle shift in Jesus' conversation with the lawyer. The lawyer was concerned about the identity of his neighbor. Who is my neighbor, he asked. Jesus challenged him to think in terms of to whom he could be a neighbor. Again, Jesus used the most unlikely person to make his point, and in doing so, forces us to consider how we relate to those with whom our lives intersect. Becoming a responsive neighbor to those who enter our sphere of influence is a basic element of discipleship with its call to love God and to love one's neighbor. So, how do we engage in kingdom conversations in a neighborly way? Well, let me draw out some observations here from Jesus' interaction with the legal expert. First, make the connection. Make the connection. I mean, there are any number of people who cross our paths every day who need a neighborly nudge towards wholeness. Good neighbors keep others' well-being in mind as they come upon opportunities to bind up wounded hearts. They place a high value on human dignity and personal relationships. So look for ways to show kindness to those whom God may bring your way and give yourself to making the connection. Secondly, invite inquiry. Be open to people's questions about God and spirituality. Create space for them to make their honest inquiries. Don't be too quick to give answers. Make sure you understand what is being asked. And if you are unsure of how to answer, don't fudge it with some face-saving response. Admit your uncertainty. Follow up with the assurance that you will do your best to find an answer. Neighbors value dialogue that feeds inquisitive minds. Next, be a storyteller. 
Note the power of story in Jesus' conversation. It opened up a revealing truth about the lawyer's hang-ups and led to a thought-provoking exchange. Story allows for contextualizing kingdom conversations in friendly language to your listener. Storytelling at its best starts with your story. Learn to be comfortable in telling your story. Know what you believe and why you believe it so that you can weave it into your storytelling with confidence and enthusiasm. And then fourth, become naturally conversant with Jesus. Uh, last summer I was working on, a, on building an arbor for our backyard or side yard, an area that my wife calls our secret garden. And uh, so as I was working on building this arbor, it was a beautiful sunny day. And so I set up my miter saw out on the driveway. My neighbor saw me working and shouted across to me, Jesus was a carpenter. <laughs> I know, I responded. That's why I'm talking to him all the time. He laughed and said, I like that. But it's true. It's true. I'm constantly talking with Jesus about what I am doing whether it's making a risky cut with my saw or just about how my day is going. When we are naturally conversant with Jesus, we acquaint ourselves with his promise to be with us always and gain the assurance of his ever-present help when words matter. And so Jesus' words to the legal expert become for us the way to living intentionally as heaven-bound followers of Jesus. Heaven belongs to those who love God and care for others as a result of this love. And so you have answered life's big question correctly when, you love, when your love for God translates into the care of others without prejudice. So as I wrap today, let me ask you this. Imagine Jesus is telling you the story of the Good Samaritan. Who would he insert in the place of the Samaritan to shatter your prejudices? How could you become a neighbor to this person? Let's pray. And so, Father, as we have unpacked this story in this encounter, this interchange between Jesus and the legal expert, there's a ton of stuff that we probably haven't even touched on, but hopefully as we've given some thought here today to this interaction, that we can glean from it understandings that will enable us to be the kind of people that love you deeply. And out of this love are spurred on to love those with whom our lives intersect. You have those that you want us to love. You have those that you want us to demonstrate the, 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 the blessing of life lived under the full understanding that we are loved by you and, and can love you back. And so help us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to see the opportunities that come our way. Help us to engage in the aspect of asking ourselves the question, to whom can we be a neighbor? 
you'll do that, we'll serve you. We'll say thank you. We'll give our lives to living out your mission. In Jesus' name.